All right. You ready for next episode? Yeah, I'm ready. All right. Here we go. Three, two, one. Welcome on in to the Double Check Podcast. I am Colin. And I am Brett. And Brett is joining us via phone line once again, calling in on the Double Check Podcast hotline. Uh, Do we have a sponsor for the hotline yet? No, it's not like uh, it's not like a you know Reed's Jewelers hotline but uh maybe maybe we will get uh some sponsorship we've gotten a lot of uh good response i think from the podcast i think the other day uh didn't we cross over 200 total listens yeah we did and it's gone up uh, even more than that since whenever i told you that but if you would like to sponsor the hotline <laughs> or anything else about this podcast. If you would like to sponsor Brett's thesis of the week, how about you give us an email at doublecheckpodcast at gmail.com. Or if you just want to send us a comment, review, question, death threat, doublecheckpodcast at gmail.com, we definitely want to hear from you. Um, we, depending on what your answer is or what your comment is and whether it is a death threat or not, our response to you uh, will be varied. But... Yeah, I, it I, might include a trip from the police. Yeah, uh, absolutely, might uh, include a restraining order in their hands, um, if that's if that's how you're choosing to uh, to to use that that resource. But uh, you can also send us uh, a question on the Anchor app. You can record a question, which would be awesome because we could uh, just use the audio and play it on the air. So uh, there's lots of ways that you can interact with us, and uh, we invite you to do all of them, including leaving us a five-star review, because if you give four stars, we're just going to say, man, you a hater. That's right. And hater's going to hate. Hater's going to hate. And flipper's going to flip. Uh, because I'm the coin flipper today, I think, right? Is that is that accurate? That's right, yeah. You're flipping, I'm calling. All right, so... Well, actually, you're calling. I'm calling. Calling. Well, you know, my middle initial yeah. is G, so whenever I write Colin G, it's kind of like calling. I don't know. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> so I have here a standard quarter, and uh, are you going to call heads or are you going to call tails, Brett? I am going to call tails today. All right. So here is the official flip, catch, and turn. And it is heads. Although, uh, on the tails, this is one of those Frederick Douglass quarters. Have you seen those? Uh, I don't think I have, actually. Oh, well, Google an image of the Frederick Douglass quarter. And funny story about them. The first time I had one, I looked at it, and I was like, who is that? And I like didn't look closely enough. And I was like, honestly, in my head, I thought, why did they put Bob Ross on a quarter? What is that about? Because it looks like this dude with an afro who's like painting a picture or something. But it's a Frederick Douglass quarter. Anyway, uh, <laughs> that I think means... It, okay, I just looked it up. It totally does look like Bob Ross with a mustache and beard. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, I was not crazy. I was just a little uh, ill no, You're not, you're not crazy. There, there's kinda, that one's kind of has two heads to it. Anyway. Continue. Yeah. Uh, all right. So does that mean I won the toss? 
Yeah, you won the toss. All are right. Gonna, are you going to take it or are you going to defer? Uh, I always defer. I'm just going to mix things up today. I called I called heads in our last episode. I'm going to mix it up again today, and I'm going to uh, I'm going to take the ball. I'm going to go first. I've never done that All before. Right, take it. But uh, take here it, we go. March down the field and score a touchdown with this thesis. All right, here we go. We have been talking about Israel uh, with Hanukkah upon us this time of year, and we're going to shift gears just a little bit uh, to talk about the church today. And the reason I want to do this is I feel like there is a little bit of confusion in Christian circles about Israel and the church. So hopefully we can clear some things up. Now, the word church is first mentioned in Matthew chapter 16. And I thought I would read from that, uh, beginning in verse 13 there. It says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said, nah, fam, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. And this is the first use of the word church in all the Bible, appearing appearing there in Matthew 16, verse 18. And Jesus says, I will build my church. You notice he says, I, and I, Christ alone, is what it really means. And he says, I will build my church. So there's a prophetic aspect there. That means that it did not exist before this, or even as Christ was speaking. It was still forthcoming. And church is ekklesia in the Greek. It means the called out ones, those called out of the world, called to follow the Messiah. So this creates a distinction between the church and every other classification of human beings that ever existed either before or after. So therefore, the church is not Israel, and Israel is not the church. They are distinct. They are separate. They are different. They do have some things in common, but let's first talk about some of the differences. First of all, God made five covenants with Israel that he never gave to the church, and they are promises that are everlasting in every respect. They are a national entity. Israel was made into a nation, a land in perpetuity. They were divinely promised the land, a throne, and that's the throne of David, a king, and Messiah is king first of the Jews, and a kingdom, that is, a kingdom on the earth. These are all everlasting covenants that God made with Israel, which he never made with the church. Now, there are certain aspects in common between Israel and the church. They both share in the purpose of Christ's incarnation. They both are subjects of his ministry. They're both beneficiaries of his death and resurrection, as well as his second coming. And they are both related to him again in the coming kingdom. But just as there are commonalities, there are also some distinctions between the two. The most conspicuous is the extent of revelation. Four-fifths of the scripture are dedicated to Israel, whereas only about one-fifth is dedicated to the church. So it's not equivalent. And there's also differences in the promises that God made to them. 
every covenant promise and provision of Israel is about things that are coming on the earth. In contrast, every promise for the church is for a heavenly reality. Now, the uniqueness of the church is highlighted in many different ways, but we're just going to take one example, and that is the sealing role of the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was very active on the earth, but since Shavuot in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit is in a very unique role that he has never before had in history. It's something that Paul was flabbergasted by in his letter to the Ephesians, that the Holy Spirit is given freely to anyone who believes, and that he indwells and seals the believer. That was something that blew Paul's mind. Now, in relation to the church and Israel, sadly, it is very easy to find the fruits of anti-Semitism in the early church. And when anti-Semitism is discussed, it's impossible to avoid the subject of Nazism. And if you look closely at the records of World War II, there is something that may surprise you. You see, after the Normandy invasion, the Allied powers were really starting to focus in on Berlin. And you would think that the German high command would pull their strongest resources to headquarters to defend themselves. But they did something rather bizarre. Instead of calling their best generals back to protect themselves, to defend Berlin, what they did instead was they accelerated their efforts in the ovens, in the concentration camps, dozens of them all over. They made commitments to increase their efforts in killing the prisoners of the camps. And you discover that to the Nazis, the priority of exterminating Jews ranked higher than winning the war. They valued it above defending Berlin, above their own survival. Now, may I say, that is demonic. That is not just a bad war strategy or a bad political move. That is demonic. And anti-Semitism in all of its forms is rooted in demonic behavior. And the early church was plagued by many forms of anti-Semitism in some surprising ways. And it's hard to say how it truly got started, but you can trace it back to when there first developed an eschatology known as amillennialism. And that essentially is a rejection of the belief that Jesus will have a literal thousand-year-long physical reign on the earth. And that was a byproduct by, uh, of a guy by the name of Origen, who leaned very heavily towards allegorical interpretations of Scripture. Now, allegories are useful for illustration, but they are licenses to invent. They are not reliable doctrinally. Origen leaned on allegorical interpretations very heavily, and he influenced another guy by the name of Augustine. Now, Augustine did do some wonderful things for the early church, but the one thing that he unfortunately did is he embraced some of the more fanciful allegorical interpretations of Origen, and he developed an eschatology that we now know today as amillennialism. And it's easy to understand why, because, you see, the church in that day started to become the state religion of the Roman Empire. And so the pastors were on the state payroll, okay? 
So preaching how Jesus was going to come back to reign on the earth, and he was going to rid the world of all of its evil rulers, can you see how that didn't land so well with the world's evil rulers? So Augustine fashioned an approach that was, well, he's going to come back to rule, but it's just in our hearts. And that leads to a number of things regarding Israel that you have to ignore or explain away or allegorize, and before long, you've put aside the Jews in your theology. And that, in short, is how the ideas behind replacement theology were birthed. And you can draw a line from Augustine to Auschwitz. Those ideas were carried forward through the Reformation and right on into the contemporary church. In fact, most churches today, probably more than half, are amillennial in their perspectives, and they think that God has put aside Israel in favor of the church. They think that the promises, the covenants, and the blessings ascribed to Israel in the Bible have been taken away from the Jews and given to the church. But there is not a shred of biblical support for this idea. It has sprung forth from the writings of the early church fathers. And here's just a sampling. Ignatius taught that those who partake of the Passover are partakers with those who killed Jesus. And that's a prevalent theme. Well, the Jews killed Jesus, they say. No. You want to know who killed Jesus? That's my fault. My sin put him on that cross. Justin Martyr claimed that God's covenant with Israel was no longer valid and that the Gentiles had replaced the Jews. Irenaeus declared that the Jews were disinherited from the grace of God. Tertullian blamed the Jews for the death of Jesus, and he argued that they had been rejected by God. Origen asserted that the Jews were responsible for killing Jesus. Eusebius taught that the promises of Scripture were meant for the Gentiles and the curses were meant for the Jews. He asserted that the church was the, quote, true Israel. Gregory of Nyssa wrote, quote, the Jews are a brood of vipers, haters of goodness. This stuff isn't in Nazi propaganda. This is in publications of the early church. Augustine himself asserted that the Jews deserved death, but were destined to wander the earth to witness the victory of the church over the synagogue. Martin Luther wrote a book called On the Jews and Their Lies, in which he advocated the burning of Jewish schools and synagogues. Now, all of these men did do some positive things for Christianity. I'm not trying to tear them down. But the early church, we discover, was astonishingly anti-Semitic. And you won't really understand the attitudes of many Jews today until you understand some of the things that they have endured under the banner of Christ. The Crusaders held contests to see how many Jewish babies they could fit onto a sword. The history is shocking to get into. I heard the testimony one time of a Jewish man who had come to faith in Jesus. And he said for years he refused to read the New Testament because his grandparents had told him that it was a book for Christians about how to persecute Jews. Now, when he finally read it, of course, he discovered that it's actually a very Jewish book written by Jews about a Jewish Messiah, and he ultimately fell in love with that Messiah. But because of the anti-Semitism that arose in the early church and in the, in the second century and following, what he understood of Christianity was that it was a religion built on persecuting Jews. 
Now, we could go on with some of these, but the point is there is a tendency in reading the Old Testament and seeing how time and again Israel failed, at least initially, there's a tendency to be very judgmental towards them and say, gee, why couldn't they get it right? Or to look at Jews today and say, how can they not believe? But just remember, as you look at Israel, the, the church has had its own fair share of failures too. Now, in summation, I want you to think about what is called the Lord's Prayer. And when it says, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, surely most Christians have prayed this prayer. But my beloved, when you pray that, what are you praying for? Most people haven't thought about that. Nothing is more certain in heaven and on earth than this prayer, thy kingdom come. Now, every Christmas, we see this on the Christmas cards, Isaiah 9, 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. I think that Handel wrote that. But Isaiah says, a child is born and a son is given. Those are not synonymous, by the way. They're almost the same, but watch out for that word almost. A child is born. That's human. That took place when a little baby was born in a place called Bethlehem. A son is given, is divine. He came out of eternity, and he was given in a place called Golgotha. But what the Christmas cards don't include is the next verse. Verse 7, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Upon the throne of David. Well, that's Old Testament stuff, right? We don't worry about that. We're, we're done with that. That was all fulfilled in Jesus. But okay, so what do we find in the New Testament? Let's talk about the Annunciation. Gabriel visits Mary, and he says in Luke 1, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give him the throne of his father David. That is an Old Testament phrase. Well, when did that happen? Certainly it did not happen in his first coming because Rome ran things. The return of Christ to rule. There are 1,845 references to it in the Old Testament. 17 books give prominence to the event. 318 references to it in the New Testament. Over 216 chapters and 23 of the 27 books deal with it heavily. The issue is germane to both Israel and the church because this is where the two ultimately get commingled. So, beloved, please recognize that when you pray, thy kingdom come, you are not asking for the kingdom to be built by anything that you do. You are asking for the Messiah, the Holy One of Israel, to return and reign from David's throne, literally. Okay, let's go up to, is something that we touched on last week, that you bring to the forefront again uh, early in the thesis, and that is that the 
the nation of Israel, the, the promises to the nation of Israel are inherently earthly promises, and the promises to the church, the covenants with the church are inherently spiritual in nature. And so what I want to ask you about is, is it not a justified way of thinking about this to say that the nation of Israel was just a picture, an earthly picture of a spiritual reality that the church fulfills that is far and above what the earthly picture could ever be. For example, the earthly picture of marriage is is a picture of how we as believers submit to the authority of Jesus and how he also submits to to us by by giving of himself. Like marriage is a picture of that, but the ultimate spiritual reality is far and above that of this earthly marriage. Is it not the same with Israel and the church? Uh, well, that is a good question, and I think that there are certain things that are pictured in the New Testament that are brought to the forefront uh, in the church. But those things still do not invalidate or override the promises that were given to Israel. And even in the New Testament, like when Paul writes to the Romans, he's writing primarily to Gentiles, but he does take a moment in chapters 9, 10, and 11 of Romans to give kind of a recap of Israel's, their past, uh, their present, and their future. And uh, one of the things that he points out is that in order to allow the Gentiles to receive the, the blessings, that God has supernaturally blinded the Jews from seeing the, Jesus as the Messiah, to, to, to allow the Gentiles a chance to come in. But when he, he, he it's, it's actually very structured. In chapter 9, he deals with Israel's past. Chapter 10, he deals with their future, or their, their present. In chapter 11, he deals with their future. And he says in 11.25, he says, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion and will remove ungodliness from Jacob. So the covenants that he made with Israel are still, uh, still stand, but part of God's plan was that Israel would experience this partial hardening, this, this supernatural blindness, and then once the full number of Gentiles comes in, God is going to remove that blindness, and they are going to to see uh, that Jesus is is their Messiah. So while there, it, while there are some things that are pictured in the Old Testament that are fulfilled in the church, there are other things, I think, that do not fit into that category. Now, is there a way that the church and the nation of Israel, until the time that that partial hardening is softened again is there is there a way for these two entities for lack of a better term to find common ground and work together even with 
the hardening, even with the history of anti-Semitism that was in the church? Is there a way for these these people to work together right now? Well, yeah. I mean, I think that there. I think that there is. I think that one of the things is we need to be aware as Christians and as um, you know, part of the the called out body of believers in the world as part of the church. We need to be aware of what's going on with Israel as a nation, because the the covenant that God made with Abram uh, in in Genesis twelve, where he he promised. Uh, to make them into a nation, and and he promised them a land. You know, I think a lot of that gets misappropriated by the church, because he promises to make them a nation and promises to make them a land, and then he promises to bless all nations through Abraham, which that part is for us, that in you all the families of the earth will be blessed, because the Messiah is going to come through that line. But the part where he says, I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, you know, when, when Israel is threatened uh, as to their, you know, there are nations in that part of the world that don't respect Israel's right to exist as a nation. And that's, that's dangerous. That is, I think, uh, rooted in satanic behavior, that, you know, the, those nations that would try to wipe Israel completely off the map and don't recognize their right to to exist as a people or or to have any any part in that land I feel like Satan is behind that and we need to uh, we need to support uh, Israel and and pray for Israel because I mean we're told in Scripture pray for the peace of Jerusalem they shall prosper that love thee and you know I think praying for Israel and I think there are certain organizations like uh, there's the fellowship of of Christians and Jews um, that you know work together to to support Israel's rights and um, you know I think that there there are a lot of things that we can do as Christians or as you know if Jews are working together with with Christians I think that there's a lot that we you know we can help one another out. Okay, so happy Hanukkah week and. What are you going to be going towards as we start to pick up our Christmas episodes next week? So um, I actually had a lot of ideas uh, in Christmas. Brett and I share a uh, Google Google Drive uh, folder where we kind of bounce our ideas around and write out our theses and, and stuff like that. And I made one that was just kind of brainstorming ideas for Christmas, and I came up with a lot. So <laughs> I don't know that we'll actually have time to get to all of them this year, but... Um, I think one of the things I want to talk about is the day we celebrate Christmas is uh, December 24th, but um, that actually is not the day uh, that Jesus was born. And I want to talk about where, uh, where that, that day came from and also talk about does it, does it actually matter uh, what day we celebrate on? And, um, you know, does it matter? I, I don't know. That's maybe something that we'll talk about in our, in our next episode. All right. And before we get to those Christmas episodes, I have one more thesis to to go through. So if you're a theological nerd such as myself, then you may know that there is an issue that's kind of happening in these circles uh, in the church the last little bit. It's getting a lot of attention. There's, there's a confrontation 
maybe confrontation is too strong of a word. There's there's a discussion, a strong discussion happening between two supposedly different camps. One on one side it's uh, been deemed the social social justice gospel camp, and then on the other side it's been deemed the gospel alone camp. And I wouldn't, I don't think that either one of them would call themselves that, but that's that's kind of how they're being talked about in in different writings. One is inherently action based, things that you have to do, while the other one is inherently belief based. We have to believe the right things and preach about the right things, and everything else will take care of itself. They seem to be coming from opposite directions. Either you do and you fight for the right things and for justice on the earth, or you just have the right set of beliefs and everything's just going to work itself out for good. This is no doubt an oversimplification of the whole thing, but this is the way that it plays out to those that don't understand both sides of the issue and they can't see where they intersect. We see a microcosm of this issue in the Bible between two different New Testament writers. On one side you have the Apostle Paul, and on the other side you have James, the half-brother of Jesus. And they have two seemingly different approaches and understandings of what it means to be a Christian. And there's a lot of ways that this mirrors the conflict that we see in the church right now. What I hope to do is show you that Paul and James are not in conflict with one another, but they're fighting the same fight back-to-back, meaning that they fight for the same gospel on two different fronts. One is of mind and of belief, and one is of the earth and of action. Paul is considered the apostle to the Gentiles. That fact alone should affect the way that we think about his writing. The people that he writes to do not have a general understanding of what a monotheistic personal God is. Not all of them do. And so Paul's writings many of the times have to lay a foundation of theology for these people to build upon. So take the first three chapters of Ephesians. They lay out things that we're supposed to believe about God and of the work of salvation. That's because Paul had to constantly remind the people that he wrote to of exactly what they were to believe. They didn't have the basic understanding of the nature of God and what Jesus did in light of that. They had to be reminded constantly so that they didn't taint the gospel with their old beliefs or with the false teachings of others. So if we compare Paul against James, we see that James is a person that's not primarily working with Gentiles, but he's a minister to the church among the Jews. You see this in verse 1 of chapter 1 of his letter where he addresses the 12 tribes that are dispersed. It's undoubtedly true that he's referencing the 12 tribes of Israel. So he is talking to a Jewish audience. So in his book of the Bible, James has an audience that has a basic theological underpinning to their lives. They understand the basic nature of God, and if they know the story of Jesus, they understand the implications of that being true or not. So James doesn't have to deal with what to believe. This Jewish audience of his has a background that takes care of that. What James has to deal with then is the actions that are associated with this belief. We have to think about the Jewish culture with their culture of tradition and their culture of law. They had a set of beliefs, but for most of them, what was most important, and you can see this about the Pharisees here, is that the things that they do have to be exactly correct. And so now, as Jesus has fulfilled the law, 
James has to combat this nature in the Jewish community that says, I have to be good enough. I have to do good. I have to do the right things. But the issue here was that the things that the religious leaders had been practicing were not in line with the gospel of Jesus. If you remember, Jesus rebuked the Pharisees many times for the things that they did because they were outside of the Old Testament law. They would add to the law, and sometimes they would even overlook the law in other areas. So James had to work through what works look like in light of the gospel, in light of Jesus and his fulfillment of the law. That was the issue that his audience had to deal with. As we look at the intersection of faith and belief, and then it with works, we have to figure out how they go together. Because if Paul and James are to work together, then there has to be a systematic way that they intersect. Paul does a great job in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 of unraveling this. And here in the CSB it says, For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. So, look at the flow of what Paul says. He starts with what God has done. He's saved by grace. Then he says that that is done through faith. That's us believing. Except for he also says that that was a gift from God, which is what we talked about last week a little bit. It is then that Paul says that we are created for good works. So through belief and by the grace of God, we are saved. And whenever we talk about being saved, I like to be I like to talk about uh, us being recreated. We're being recreated uh, continually for. Uh, what we were created for to begin with. And through that recreation, we are able to fulfill good works that are set up for us by him. Besides the fact that God has his sovereign hand over all this, we can start to see how beliefism, how the beliefism of Paul and the worksism of James fit together. These two are really fighting the same fight. They are back to back and on different fronts. James says that faith without works is dead. So if there is not good coming from your life, you have to ask yourself if you really believe what you say you believe. And likewise, if you are doing good with no clear reason for it, it is futile and absurd because it has no end. You cannot have one without the other. I think inherent to the writings of Paul and James are some warnings against extremism in either direction either believism or worksism. To the person focused on beliefs, there is the warning that if there's no action to accompany your belief, you really don't have faith in your supposed beliefs. And to the person focused on work and justice, there is a warning that works without belief is empty, temporary, and without significance. And I want to speak specifically to one class of people, and that would be those who believe, but to their genuine dismay, do not see the growth or see fruit that they think they should. These people may be tempted to write themselves off as not good enough or not Christian enough, despite their genuine belief. To them, I wanted to say that in salvation through faith, there is on one hand an immediacy to heart change. That's that's what you want. You're You're desiring that. But there's also certainly a progressive work of sanctification. That means that God is going to continually be working to shape you into a better person. 
And so one thing that I want to add to the this class of people, these these people that that believe but they don't see the fruits like they think that they should see it, and then they they doubt that if they actually believe to begin with. Uh, here's a quote from C.S. Lewis from Mere Christianity. On the one hand, we must never imagine that our own unaided efforts can be relied on to carry us even through the next 24 hours as decent people. If he does not support us, not one of us is safe from some gross sin. On the other hand, no possible degree of holiness or heroism which has ever been recorded on the greatest saints is beyond what he is determined to produce in every one of us in the end. The job will not be completed in this life, but he means to get us as far as possible before death. C.S. Lewis continues, he says, That is why we must not be surprised if we are in for a rough time. When a man turns to Christ and seems to be getting on pretty well, in the sense that some of his bad habits are now corrected, he often feels that it would now be natural if things went fairly smoothly. But whenever troubles come along, illnesses, money troubles, new kinds of temptation, he is disappointed. These things he feels might have been necessary to rouse him and make him repent of in his bad old days. But why now? Because God is forcing him on or up to a higher level, putting him in situations where he will have to be very much braver or more patient or more loving than he has ever dreamed of being before. It seems to us all unnecessary, but that is because we have not yet the slightest notion of the tremendous thing he means to make of us. End quote. So all this is to say one thing. We must have a full theology that includes not just faith and belief or works, but one that understands and practices both. One that understands that faith leads to good works and that works without faith is dead, just like faith without works is dead. And we have to believe that God is continually sanctifying us even whenever our works are not as good as what we think that they should be, that he is continually molding us through. So one without the other is not able to sustain itself. James and Paul, they understood this, and so should we. Okay, I just have a couple of quick questions for you. Um, I think for the most part, you and I agree on this one. But when the issue is raised of, uh, you know, pitting James against Paul and and, uh, salvation by faith versus uh, works, why is it important to show that they are in harmony and not uh, in contradiction with one another? It's important because if, if you don't have both of them, then you have an incomplete theology. And without an incomplete the- or with an incomplete theology, you are never actually living the life that Christ intended for you. He intends for you to do good works that are set before you, but you can only do those good works with the with the clarity and with the purposefulness that he that he intends for it. If you have the the theological the the beliefism underpinning to it, so. Whenever you separate the two, they end up crumbling on their own. It's it's it, it, if if you have beliefism without 
but without good works associated with it, then the the world can look in at you, look look into the church, and say they are just worried about themselves. They they aren't going out into the world, right? And without without the beliefs accompanying good works, so whenever you just have good works, well, that's that's just humanism, right? If if there's no reference to God, and I'm not saying that people don't reference God, right? But the emphasis is so much on doing the good works that Christ is lost in it, right? We are doing the works, but it's really the power of Christ in us that gives us the ability to do the works the way that he intended us to do them. Yeah, uh, and I I think it's also, you know, the issue is raised of contradictions in the Bible, usually by non-believers or atheists, to show, well, you know, it's just a man-made book, it contradicts itself all over the place. And when you can actually um, have an understanding of what those two are saying in context and see that they are in harmony with one another, I think that is an important thing, especially for somebody who might be struggling in their faith. And they, when they get presented with those, they say, gee, well, you know, does it contradict, it, it contradict itself? How can I put my trust in a document that's uh, not, not being consistent? And so having that understanding of the consistency does, uh, does help to... At least for me, it helps to, to amplify my own my own faith. Something I wanted to get your your thoughts on, um, which could uh, potentially speak into um, this idea of why Paul and James seemingly write uh, write different things. Um, and I I don't know if I'm a hundred percent on board with this idea, but I have heard a Bible teacher talk about uh, you know the Old Testament was leading up to the revelation of Christ, right? Everything was building up to his first coming, and then first coming, the Gospels record uh, what the Messiah did in his first coming and his death, burial, and resurrection. And then all of the letters after that are amplifying what that means in different cultures and in different contexts, what the Gospel means to Rome compared to what it means to Corinth, to uh, Ephesus, to Thessalonica, to the Jews, uh, you know, and so and so forth, and that's why there are some of these differences. Like to the church in Rome, uh, Paul Paul writes and commends uh, all these women who are ministers and in roles of leadership, and to the church in Corinth, he he says women shouldn't even speak, and he he's saying that's because there are cultural differences in all of these places, and what the gospel means in that cultural context is different, and that's that's what uh, that can uh, account for some of the differences in the letters. And I just wanted to hear what you thought about that. So, if we're looking at at the New Testament expounding the the cultural differences, the cultural uh, implications of the gospel, um, I don't think that is necessary. The necessarily the greatest way of interpreting it because that almost hinges on on the gospel being relative to whatever cultural situation you find yourself in with the example that you gave which was um, affirming women leaders and then in in one area and then in the other area telling them not to 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 speak in in the service, um, 
I think there are there is another way of interpreting that that uh, does not just chalk it up to different cultural implications of the gospel in different places, but instead, uh, like we did with James and, and Paul, is actually getting a fuller picture of theology. And so with the example that you gave, um, I think a better interpretation of that would be uh, you take the, the one thing that Paul said about women and then uh, and then the other thing that Paul said, and I think if you combine them together, you get a, a fuller picture of one consistent theology of the church. So I don't think I would necessarily agree with that that Bible teacher. But in the same vein, different cultures do have different things that the gospel speaks into. So the gospel very well speaks into Jewish culture in a very distinct way apart from the way that it speaks into like American culture, right? We, we see different implications from it, but I don't think that's what the New Testament is doing. And so we can just write off some things because we didn't live in Rome or write off other things because we didn't live in, in Corinth. There are different ones, but I, I don't think that that's what the New Testament is doing. Yeah. And, Does that make sense? It, no, it does. And, you know, I, this this particular Bible teacher, I'm not going to mention names because I don't I don't really like to name drop, but he he does have a lot of good teaching, I think, and I don't know if I'm 100% in agreement with him on that because I think that it can sort of be somewhat of an over-contextualization. Like there's, there's a danger in Bible teaching of just completely ignoring the context and just pulling out a verse and saying, well, this is what it means. There's also a danger in over-contextualizing and, like you said, saying— well, you know, that, that was in Corinth, that doesn't apply to us, or that was in Rome at the at the time, that doesn't apply to us. And that I, I think that there are better ways of drawing out meaning from those things. But I just wanted to to hear your thoughts on that. So something that I would add to that is like I'm looking at, at Colossians. Colossians was written to a church in a city that had to deal with a lot of a lot of different gods, right? This city liked and and worshipped an abundance of different gods. So in that cultural context, Paul is writing to the Colossian church, and he is saying that in his his main theme for them, which speaks into their culture, is that Christ is above all. Christ is above all of these gods, all the other gods. They, they don't even exist. So he, he takes this, this culture and he speaks into the culture. But the implications and the truth behind it is true for every person, not just for those in, in, in that city. So I think that would be one example where, where that would be over-contextualization uh, if someone were to say That's, that only applies to them because that was their cultural makeup. Yeah. All right, so as we move into the Christmas season, where are you going next, Brett? Okay, I'm not going to give anything away, but I think I'm going to take a step away from the Bible next week, and I'm going to interact with culture, culture of Christmas, and I'm going to take a hot. I'm going to make a hot take. Oh, on, hot take! Hot take on something that we do 
that everyone loves during the Christmas season that I'm not too thrilled about, and I'm going to try to tear it to shreds. What, uh, so stay, are you tuned, gonna, stay tuned for next week. You're not going to tell us what it is? No, I'm not going to. I, I got to leave it just like that. Come back next week. All right. Well, because you said a moment ago, tear it to shreds, that means that we've come to the end of our time together. We are so grateful that you've joined us. Make sure that you leave us a rating, that you send us a comment, doublecheckpodcast at gmail.com. We want to hear from you. You know, we do this uh, talking about life, theology, and culture, and uh, Brett and I do see eye to eye on a lot of things, but I think that there are some things that we're not 100% in agreement on, but we still can have conversation. We can uh, have have these discussions, and we can, you know, double-check each other and you know, both uh, challenge one another and get get one another thinking, and that's what that's what we're trying to do. And we want you to do that. If maybe you know you have something to add to the conversation or something that you want to challenge one of us with, Brett, do you have anything you want to add? No, just like, share, subscribe, uh, talk with a friend about what you're what you're learning about, what you're hearing about on here, and talk with us about about what you're hearing. And we hope. See you back next week. All right. See you, nerds.